The scripture reading today is from 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 through 4. Hear the word of the Lord. Now as an elder myself and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory to be revealed, I exhort the elders among you to tend the flock of God that is in your charge, exercising the oversight not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you do it, not for sordid gain, but eagerly. Do not lord it over those in your charge, but be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will win the crown of the glory that never fades away. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Leah. Wonderfully done. Well, I imagine that a few of you uh, have been paying attention, and as, as uh, Leah read that scripture from 1 Timothy 5, a few of you are wondering, how did we get to 1, Timothy, I mean, 1 Peter 5? Weren't we in chapter 1 last week when Lisa preached? Did I fall asleep during that sermon only to wake up six weeks later like Rip Van Winkle or something? Well, let me reassure you, this morning we are skipping ahead to chapter 5 and Peter's words about leaders in the church, because as we have just done, we are privileged today to set apart elders and deacons elected by you to serve this congregation. In our form of church governance, which might be most likened to a representative democracy, the congregation chooses those of Christian character and maturity to provide leadership for us. Presbyterian congregations as a whole vote on relatively few matters, but around leadership, we are especially inviting of congregational participation. And one of the most important has to do with this selection of men and women who have earned your trust and who, in turn, are charged with the weighty responsibility of ensuring the faithfulness and maturity of National Presbyterian Church. If the system of representative governance sounds slightly familiar to you, it is because it is the model that best describes our nation's constitution, which was influenced in its structure and rationale by the polity of the Scottish Presbyterian Church, which in turn had been influenced by the Protestant Reformation and especially by John Calvin, whose concern was that power be shared, especially in the church. So it seems fitting this morning as we have ordained and installed this new class of elders and deacons, that we jump ahead in our look at 1 Peter to that section where the apostle speaks directly to the leaders of those churches in Asia Minor. As it happens, he saves these instructions for the very end of his letter. And I don't think that is accidental. Last words are significant. We tend to pay attention, don't we, more clearly, more closely. If we know that we're about to lose a friend or to be separated from someone who's been important to us, 
we pay closer attention to those words and interactions. And often, those last words can be revealing as to the character of the speaker and what matters the most to him or to her. Some words that have probably been captured down through the years are inspirational. I'm sure many of you still remember Patrick Henry's famous words, give me liberty or give me death. Those were probably the first last words that I actually learned when I was reading the Bible of my youth, which was fourth grade Virginia history. Others, last words might not be so profound, but they are equally telling. P.T. Barnum, you know him, the traveling circus owner and salesman extraordinaire, was only concerned with one thing on his deathbed. How were today's receipts at the Madison Square Garden, he asked, and then he kicked off. August Comte, 19th century French philosopher and sociologist who also had the chutzpah to try to create his own religion, is said to have sighed on his deathbed, what an irreparable loss. Some of you might want to write that down for your tombstone. <laughs> and then there was Pancho Villa, the Mexican revolutionary, who came to the last moments of his life and found himself wanting. He recognized the importance of the moment, but he said, don't let it in like this. Tell them I said something. Well, Villa, even though he came up empty, knew the importance of last words. And so did the Apostle Peter. We've just read some of his last words to Christians who were anxious, uncertain, and trying to bear up in difficult circumstances. Peter had heard of their persecution, and he is writing to them to encourage them to lift their embattled heads and their sagging spirits, and to see their suffering from a different perspective, a perspective that focused on Jesus Christ as their risen and conquering Savior. Now his letter is coming to its end, and Peter knew that the survival and health of these struggling churches depended less on any brilliant thing that he might say, but more on the character of those congregations themselves, and especially on their leaders. Would the leadership of those churches fulfill their crucial roles in this moment of testing? And would the congregation itself then rise to the challenge, or would they splinter and die? Peter's last words address those concerns, and in them, Peter also addresses us. A few nights ago, many of us witnessed in the President's State of the Union address an interruption by the opposition party who were flinging charges of dishonesty toward the President. And of course, similar charges have been leveled at his predecessor and at his predecessor 
and at his predecessor, regardless of party. It's commonplace, I think, to hear complaints about those in political authority these days, and I'm not the only one to wonder if our better candidates simply refuse to subject themselves and their families to the bitter rancor that accomplishes so much of public service these days. Of course, one reason for the state of things is, in fact, dishonesty in those in the public eye, occasioned in part, perhaps, by their fears or by their pride or lust for power. It seems to matter more than character. Character, and the best definition I have for you on that, is who you are when no one's looking. Character seems to have much less importance when compared to the pragmatic realities of political influence. And as a result, cynicism and distrust run pretty deep in our cultural moment. But I'm of the opinion that character matters greatly, and it matters nowhere as much as it does in the church, where leadership has an undeniable moral quality, where it is not just governed by what may be pragmatic, but behind every formal and informal responsibility, we take upon ourselves an obligation of the highest order to reflect the character of Jesus Christ. And Peter knew it. He knew how critical leadership was, especially in these young churches, immature as they were in terms of age and under threat from those who were persecuting them. So he challenged them to look to the character of their leadership as they assumed the mantle of responsibility in their churches. His challenge, three of them, sound remarkably contemporary. The first one we find in the first verse. Be shepherds of God's flock, he writes, not because you must, but because you desire to serve God and his people in this way. I bet you've noticed, as I have, a difference between people who are engaged in a task simply because they have to be and those who do so because they want to. Of course, there are times when we just have to do the things that need to be done, whether we feel like it or not. Make your bed, take out the trash, pay the bills, go to meetings. And in truth, human beings are constructed in such a way that the have to almost always has to precede the want to. Does that make sense? That we do things before we understand their value. That we do them out of duty, and then someday we find ourselves doing them because we want to, and because we see a value that otherwise was hidden from us when we were less mature. The have to almost always precedes the want to. But service to God's people in leadership 
It flows from a fundamental desire that moves beyond duty and have to. I'm convinced that where church leadership is concerned, a lack of desire is closely related to a lack of vision and understanding of the place and importance of the church in the economy of the kingdom of God. And the converse is also true. Where there is a deeply formed biblical vision for the church, there is even joy among the leadership, joy to be found there in the deep satisfaction that comes from knowing that in serving God's people, we are serving God himself and are, as Peter says, partakers in God's glory. In the end, it is that connection, that connection between God and his people that is the very wellspring of desire from which flows the gift of leadership. Shepherds who have apprenticed themselves to the good shepherd. And the metaphor for Peter is not accidental. It is deeply personal for Peter. You'll remember the Apostle Paul's encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road? Well, Peter's Damascus Road experience, if you will, took place not in a desert, but on a beach where the risen Christ encountered Peter over breakfast and forgave him for his betrayals and then commissioned him with words that were forever emblazoned on Peter's memory. Peter, after all of that, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who has become the good shepherd, who forgives and commissions the braggart disciple who walked away from him, who denied him three times. Here, Peter is being shepherded, brought back into the fold by the tenderness of the shepherd who knows the frailty of his flock. Of all the images that Peter could have used to encourage the elders of these frail churches, he chooses this image of shepherd. In John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd sees the wolf coming and what does he do? He runs for his life forgets about the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and they know me. And I lay down my life for them. Christian leaders are both sheep and, by God's grace, shepherds, who in their leading follow the voice of the Good Shepherd themselves. Their leadership, as Peter's, is rooted in their own encounter with Christ and their own experience of forgiveness and the grace of commissioning.
The second challenge is be not greedy for money, but be eager to serve. Now, I got to tell those of you who are just ordained that you are not going to make a lot of money serving as elder or deacon at NPC. But those ancient elders in those Asia Minor churches probably had an additional responsibility that we, we are grateful to have Leah here. Uh, we have a process, you know, where we handle funds so that we are beyond any accusation. But those, those ancient elders had responsibility not just for the offerings, but for the common purse of the community. They were holding the social security benefits, if you will, for those churches and for their neighbors. And where there is money, all of us know, there is temptation. Well, the second challenge needs to be read more broadly. It's not only about money. It is the challenge of integrity. Do our elders and deacons display integrity in their service to you, the congregation? Is there a genuine faith at work in their lives, a vital relationship with Jesus Christ that informs their leadership? Is there a vulnerability that is born of their awareness that they do not have all the answers, that they are dependent beings who are just as dependent on Jesus Christ for forgiveness as Peter and Paul were? Vulnerability about their weaknesses. That's a precursor, isn't it? To leadership that is empathetic with the needs of others. Knowing that love and support comes from others. That they themselves have been the recipients of love and forgiveness. If it is true that someone can lead only as far as they themselves have been willing to be led, do we see in these that we call into leadership that sort of quality? Are they faithful to their promises, the commitments that they make as a part of the fulfillment of their respective offices? These are the kinds of questions that are reflective of the integrity of Christian leadership. So desire, integrity, and last, humility. Peter says, don't lord it over those who are entrusted to your care, but instead be examples to the flock. Leadership in our day and time is too often presumptuous, easily infected with a sort of I'm in charge here kind of attitude. And when this happens, the emphasis falls on the benefits, the privileges of leadership, the self-important attitude that asks of everyone that it encounters, do you know who you're dealing with here? And unfortunately, the church is not immune to this. Narcissism seems to find plenty of fertilizer among pastors and church leaders. But Christian leadership is rooted in the privilege of service. Recognizing that leadership is not something we have earned, but something that has been entrusted to us, a gift not of our own deserving. That sort of leadership recognizes that it is only effective 
as we remember that we lead by example, that our people ought to expect us to lead by example, and not simply by the naked exercise of whatever authority might happen to be a part of our office. Christian leaders have authority, to be sure, and congregations need to understand and honor that. But it is a derived authority, one which is given to us by God and is to be held lightly and humbly and offered back to God. So desire, integrity, and humility. Three marks of leadership that I'm glad to say that I saw evidence of in this class that we have just ordained today through our leadership training. None of them would claim to be perfect, but all of them are motivated out of a desire to serve you, and more importantly, Jesus Christ. You have chosen well. And let me just add an aside here for those of you who are Baptists instead of Presbyterians. Elders in the Presbyterian Church are elected, and some of you who are elders a long time ago, this might be bad news to you, I don't know, but you were elected forever. Elders for life. Who are the elders in the room? Raise your hands if you dare, yes. Now, everybody look around. These are your elders, okay? Oh, some of their hands just went down when I asked you to do that. <laughs> Even though they're not serving on the session, which is our fancy word for elder board, it doesn't mean that they have less responsibility in this body. The congregation ought to expect that all of these same qualities and more are still present and at work in those who have been elected to office, whether today or a long time ago. Desire, integrity, humility. You say that with me? Desire, integrity, Humility. At a crucial time in my own pastoral leadership, when I could easily have opted for a path of self-importance and ambition, I came under the wing of a Christian leader who epitomized all three of those virtues. He was my shepherd when I was needing to be guided on the path to still waters and green pastures when I needed to be walked through the valley of the shadow of death. I've never met a man that I respect more. Not every associate pastor can say that about his boss. But I count him as one of God's greatest gifts to me. And if, by some calculus of the Holy Spirit, those virtues are found in me at all, he is the one to blame. But of course, he would demur and point instead to the great shepherd, or as Peter says in verse 4, the chief shepherd, the exemplar for every pastor, every elder and deacon, and indeed for every one of us who names the name of Jesus, every disciple of Jesus Christ, every follower. And there are no better last words than those which he spoke when he said, as his life was ebbing from his body, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. I can only imagine that Peter had those words in mind as he was praying for those churches in Asia Minor 
Father, into your hands, I commit those churches. I hope you'll join me in praying for National Presbyterian Church regularly and perhaps daily, that we together would commend, commit this congregation in its ministry and mission as we stand here at the highest point of the city, that our light would shine, that we would say, Lord, we commit this congregation to you and to the work of your spirit into your hands. We commit National Presbyterian Church. Those words define our vision of trust and dependence as we seek to be this church on Nebraska Avenue, as we walk into the future confident that the Lord has called us, provided for us, and will see us through the challenges that are sure to come. Father, into your hands, we commit this church. May you keep us faithful to that vision. Should we pray? Lord, in this moment, would you penetrate our dull senses and our sleepy minds by your Holy Spirit? Would you speak a word as each one has needs? Would you encounter us with a word of encouragement or hope? Would you affirm your trustworthiness? Would you speak quietly to each of our hearts, letting us know how pleased you are that we are even here and interested in being your disciples? Provide for us, O oh Father. We know that the raw material with which you have to work is pretty limited, and yet you have said that you would make all things new. Into your hands, we commit not only our lives, but the life, the ministry, and the future of National Presbyterian Church. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.